There's an old saying that if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. Well, I think in Christian writing circles, if you write a bigger or more sensationalistic book about heaven, the publishers will certainly beat a path to your door. Boy, haven't we seen that lately? There has been one after another after another book written about individuals who claimed, <clears throat> at the very least, that they, were go they, they had gone or knew somebody who had actually visited heaven. Maybe you've even uh, read some of these titles. There was, of course, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Uh, there was another one called Revealing Heaven, where the author claimed that the Lord gave her special tours of heaven on a regular basis, and then uh, she was to share these tours as the Lord provided them. There was The Sound of Heaven, where a former Hollywood actress uh, said that God specially revealed to her what the heavenly chorus sounded like. There is Heaven is for Real, uh, which was made into a major motion picture with the famous actor uh, Greg Kinnear starring in it. Well, you know, there are all kinds of books on heaven, from the sublime to the ridiculous. There's some great books out there about heaven, like Randy Alcorn's book uh, titled Heaven, for lack of a better term. But, you know, I hate to be the skunk at the picnic, but when I see these kind of books and I hear people getting excited about these kind of books, I get a little cynical, a little skeptical, if you will. Why? Well, consider the words of a guy who actually made the trip to heaven. His name was the Apostle Paul. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he wrote this, It is doubtful not, uh, doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such one was taken up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Period. You know, we, we read this and our first reaction is, come on, Paul, Paul, Paul. You saw paradise? You saw the third heaven, the place where God directly manifests his glory and his presence, and you're not going to fill in the blank? You're not going to tell us exactly what you saw and how over the top it was and, and who you met and what they said? And No, he just stops right there. Now, now notice he said he heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. What, what Paul, in essence, is saying here is, I could tell you what this experience was all about, but... If I were to try to describe it in words, it would be a crime. And so he drops the big period right there. He doesn't tell us anything more about heaven than that, that he was there, he heard inexpressible words and things which are not lawful for a man to utter. Now, why is the Bible so tight-lipped on such a crucial subject? You know, there's an old German proverb that eternity is a long bargain, that all of us should spend time thinking about our future because we have to live there someday. Well, wouldn't you think the whole idea of where we're going to spend everlasting life would fit that description to a T? And yet, 
we're just not told a whole lot on the subject. Do you ever wonder why? Well, I've pondered that for a lot of years, and maybe the best answer I've ever come up with explaining why there seems to be such a scarcity of descriptions of the actual place where God manifests his presence in his glory, it might come down to this. Maybe the Bible doesn't give us more on the subject of heaven because we're really not being super faithful with what we've already got regarding what the Bible has to say about heaven. And, and I want to tell you something. What we've got about heaven is pretty profound stuff. So profound, I don't think we necessarily need a vision or an experience to augment it if we fully understand the great things that God has already revealed to us about. Tonight in Revelation chapter 5, we are going to take a trip into the very manifested presence of God. You know, when Paul talks about visiting the third heaven, the Bible speaks of heaven in three ways. First, it speaks of the heavens and uses the word to describe the atmosphere around the earth. Secondly, it describes the place of the stars, the moons, and the planet. It uses the term heaven to describe it all. But it also uses the term heaven to describe the place where God directly manifests his glorious presence. And there are a few passages in Scripture you can run into where we see more insights into this glorious third heaven than in Revelation chapter 5. We pick things up in verse 1. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now, right off the bat, we start out with some pretty amazing things. If you're with us last week when uh, you were, we had the opportunity to go through Revelation chapter 4, we saw the focal point of the description of heaven. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. We saw that here is one of the great transition points in the book of Revelation. As we've mentioned many times, the book of Revelation is a very easy book to outline. Why? Because it outlines itself. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, Jesus told John to write the things which you have seen. That is, the glorified Jesus as he revealed himself to John on the island of Patmos. He said, write the things which are... We focused in on the letters to the seven churches, the condition that would dominate among God's people from the time of Jesus' first coming to the time of his second coming, and then the things which will take place after these things. Well, here we see the dead giveaway after these things. What things? The things pertaining to the church. After God is done dealing with the world through the church, notice the first thing that happens was a door standing open in heaven. And a voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. Well, any of you have ever read the famous passage on the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you start to see some real parallels, some real uh, not so subtle uh, hints that what we are dealing with here is the actual rapture happening. 
The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And then those who have died in Christ shall be raised, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet them in the clouds, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Well, this beautiful moment is described here, and, and again, we are introduced to the focal point of heaven. I saw, I was in the spirit, behold, a throne set in heaven, one sat on the throne. He who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and we could go into an awful lot of detail about the other wonderful things that the Apostle John saw, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the description of the awesome throne of God, the emerald rainbow around the throne, God's promise of everlasting life symbolized there, the lampstand, which is a beautiful picture of the sevenfold spirit of God manifested in the characteristics that, that we see in Jesus, our Messiah, the sea of glass like crystal, this beautiful picture of the finished, forgiving, cleansing work of Christ. The four living creatures, these marvelous angelic beings that represent the closeness of God to his people and the, the, the relationship he has with them. A beautiful picture of angelic worship. And that day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Well, again, we saw this beautiful picture of 24 elders. Well, why 24? Well, again, the picture of 12, the number 12 in the Scripture, has always been a picture associated with the fullness of God's people. There was the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Here you see sort of a culmination of both Old Testament and New Testament saints gathered there before the throne of God, worshiping Him and saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Boy, I, I love this picture of the one who sits on the throne. Now, clearly, this is a picture of God manifesting himself, God the Father. We're going to see God the Son coming on the scene in just a moment here. But uh, fascinating detail about this that, that always is compelling to me. His appearance was like a jasper and a sardius stone. In other words, to look upon God, you would see this glorious manifestation of these two stones, if you will, these two precious gemstones, if you will, are reflected in the presence of God. Why a jasper and a sardius stone? Well, it goes back to a very familiar thing for a person who was part of the people of Israel. It was the high priest's uniform. On the high priest's uniform, they would wear what was called an ephod. It was a breastplate, if you will. And part of this ephod would have 12 stones, which would be over the left-hand side of the priest's chest, that is, right over the heart. And how interesting, the first stone, which represents the first tribe of Israel in sequence, was a stone that would represent the tribe of Reuben. Reuben literally means, behold a son. And then the last of the 12 stones that would be over the high priest's chest in the ephod was the tribe of Benjamin. How interesting. Benjamin wasn't the first name given to this young man who would be the father of this tribe. No, he was called Benoni because his mother, Rachel, died in childbirth. She called him son of my sorrow, but his father, Jacob, changed the name to son of my right hand. How interesting that when we look upon God and all of his manifest glory, looking upon the unseeable, uncomprehendable God, how do we see him? We see him 
manifested through our Lord Jesus Christ. He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Now, the Father is distinct from the Son, obviously, but if we want to understand the unseen Father, the invisible Almighty One, we can understand everything we need to understand about God by looking at the person of Jesus. And so we see in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, uh, the scroll that you see here, sometimes we minimize the, the significance of this scroll. We tend to think of cartoonish pictures of some character opening up a scroll and saying, hear ye, hear ye. But scrolls were a lot more elaborate than that. For instance, uh, scrolls weren't written like uh, up, up and down like uh, we would uh, usually with our idea of a scroll opening like that. If you opened a scroll to read it, you would open it this direction. You would open it horizontally, not vertically. And boy, let me tell you something. Uh, back then, before someone finally uh, invented what we would know today as a book, uh, that kind of a format, scrolls are a pretty elaborate thing. For instance, if you had a scroll of the book of Revelation and you were to open it, it would constitute about 15 feet of material in order just to have the book of Revelation at your fingertips. So here we see that in the right hand of him who's on the throne, there's this scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, there's all kinds of interesting speculations about why it's written inside and on the back. Uh, there are those who uh, point to this tradition in Judaism that if you got into hawk, say, you, you, you got to a place where you couldn't pay your debts, you could give the deed to your particular property to somebody as collateral, and they would seal that deed because you couldn't uh, do anything with the property until you paid off the debts. The listing of the debts would be written on the outside of the scroll, and then it would be sealed. As you paid off those debts, you could then remove those seals one after another until finally you could take back that scroll, you could take back uh, possession of that property. It's a very interesting idea. We're not sure exactly why this scroll is written inside and back. We're not told specifically. But if it uh, relates to all of this, it certainly gives us some insight into verse 2. It says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, there are those who speculate as to the identity of this strong angel. Uh, we really don't know who this strong angel is. Some will say that it was the angel Gabriel, because in Revelation, or I should say Daniel chapter 12, we see the angel Gabriel telling Daniel to seal up a particular scroll at that time. And so they say, well, it's, it's got to be Gabriel. We really don't know. In Revelation chapter 10, we see another mighty angel, an almighty angel, if you will, uh, come on the scene and, and be described in all kinds of awesome ways. Is it the angel from Revelation chapter 10? Is it the angel from Daniel chapter 12? We really don't know. All we do know is this. He was no one to be trifled with. He was a mighty angelic creature, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now, we find ourselves saying, okay, got this scroll, it's sealed with seven seals, it's written on the inside and out. 
This angel says, who's worthy to take a look at this? The resounding answer, nobody. Nobody is able to take a look at what this scroll is all about. Well, once again, we can ask ourselves the question, all right, why couldn't anybody take a look at what was going on with this scroll? Why was it uh, for eyes only, if you will, top secret clearance? <laughs> no one else could take a look at it in heaven and on earth or under the earth. Why was it that when the question was answered with a resounding silence about who was worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals, why is it that John wept much? Because no one was found to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Well, there's all kinds of speculations about this. Let me condense it down, and, and I'll share with you what my conviction is, and your mileage may vary. You know, we talked about the idea of a Jewish individual having their property go into hawk, if you will, uh, having to mortgage their property because they couldn't pay their debts. And uh, because of this, a scroll written on the inside and out would be a picture of the fact that there was a debt a price that had to be paid before the scroll could be returned to its rightful owner. You know, when we take a look at God's purpose for man, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we know that God put man on earth to exercise dominion over the earth. In other words, we were the ones who were in charge of running this place. But when man fell... When Eve was deceived by the serpent and Adam deliberately acted in rebellion against God, we forfeited that place of dominion. <clears throat> and there's some interesting insights into who we forfeited that dominion to. In the book of Luke, we are told uh, that when Jesus faced his time of temptation in the wilderness, Satan made a very interesting statement to him. The devil, taking him up on a high mountain, we are told in Luke chapter 4 and verse 5, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Now, notice something. Jesus doesn't respond to Satan by saying, you liar. It doesn't belong to you. This is my father's world. We sing that hymn in church. No, he doesn't dispute Satan's claim. As a matter of fact, uh, a few uh, books over, just south of the book of Revelation, in the book of 1 John, chapter 5, we're told a very interesting thing about the condition of this world as it exists right now. In verse 19 of 1 John, chapter 5, we are told, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, when Adam and Eve fell, a transaction, if you will, took place. In other words, there was a void, there was a vacuum that happened. Because we were, according to God's plan and will, to be the ones who exercised authority of this earth, we forfeited that right. And we forfeited it to a very cruel taskmaster indeed. We forfeited it to Satan himself. And so, because of this, there are those who believe, and I think there's a lot to recommend this point of view, that what we are talking about here in this scroll was nothing less than the title deed to planet Earth. 
Now, some very solid scholars will say, yeah, that might be a little limiting. You know, what uh, might really be involved here is just a picture of what God's great plan is for his creation uh, going forward, because that's where we are in the book of Revelation. We're looking at the things that are yet to come, and, and I understand all of that. But if that's just the case, A, why couldn't people look at it if it was just God's great plan to redeem mankind? And B, why was it that the Apostle John found himself weeping so uncontrollably because of this development? Could it be that the tears that we see, the tears in heaven that the Apostle John experienced here, were the tears, say, for instance, that Adam and Eve shed when they discovered that their first son, Cain, had become the first murderer? and that their second son, Abel, was the first murder victim? Could they have been the very same tears that were shed when the prophet Samuel looked upon the people of Israel and said, no, 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 give us a king like we can be like all the other nations. And God said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel, from being king. They've rejected me. Could it have been the same tears that we see in the weeping prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, as he saw the devastation that came upon the people of Israel as a result of turning their backs on God. Could it be the same tears that Jesus himself shed when he looked over Jerusalem, saw the city, and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things which make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here we see that heartbrokenness that we all experience when we realize that, hey, we live in a fallen world. And no one gets to get out of jail free card from all of the consequences that have come from that decision that Adam and Eve made to forfeit the authority God gave to them and to put it in the hands of the cruel taskmaster Satan himself. I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it, let alone redeem it. But then suddenly out of the blue, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him, who sat on the throne. Wow, what a development. Suddenly, there is a reason not to weep. Notice, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Boy, beautiful titles here of Jesus. He is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, that goes back to a pronouncement of blessing, believe it or not, from the uh, lips of, uh, of uh, no less an individual than Jacob himself, getting ready to pass from this world. 
he pronounced this blessing <coughs> on Judah. He said, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And him shall be the obedience of the people. Again, this picture, this prophecy that from the tribe of Judah would come Messiah himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the lion, is the king of the beasts. So we see this picture of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Notice he's called the root of David. Now, that's an interesting statement to be made for sure. Jesus being the root of David was something that was a real head scratcher, especially for the people of his day. You might recall in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 23, Jesus was getting into a Q&A session with his most ardent critics. They kept asking him what they would call killer questions designed to discredit him. But at the end of the dialogue, Jesus turned the tables on his critics by asking them a very interesting question indeed. In Matthew chapter 20, uh, I should say Matthew chapter 22 and verse 41, it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, who do you think, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day onward did anyone dare question him anymore. You see, here we see the miracle of the incarnation, the fact that God became a man and walked among us. Because in that one act, we were told, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, you shall call his name Emmanuel. On the one side of the coin, David's greatest promise from God, that he would have a son who would sit on the throne and his kingdom would last forever and ever, would be fulfilled. And on the other side of the coin, that same son, that descendant of David, would also be someone with an eternal pre-existence. He is the root and the offspring of David, if you will, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, here we go. Whoa, that is a very interesting manifestation indeed. When Jesus comes on the scene, right, he is introduced as a, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet we see him here. He's described as a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Well, let's take that apart for just a second. There's some fascinating details here, but I want to save the best for last. Notice this lamb is first of all manifest as though it had been slain. In other words, even in the presence of God himself, we still see the atoning sacrifice of Jesus manifested for our sins. 
His greatest glory is in the sacrifice that he made for us. Notice as well, this lamb is described as having seven horns and seven eyes. Horns are a picture of power or authority. In other words, this lamb is imbued with complete and total omnipotence. There is nothing that is beyond the power of this lamb to accomplish. The picture of seven eyes, you can look, uh, Zechariah chapters 3 and 4, speak about the eyes of the Lord, this picture of wisdom, this picture of understanding, the idea that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth to strongly support those who call upon him in truth. This picture of omniscience, knowing all, having all power, this lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet, we are told he is manifest as a lamb. Now, I think this is fascinating because this is the only time in the entire Scripture where this particular word for lamb is used to describe Jesus. You go, well, wait a minute. When Jesus came on the scene, didn't John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, say, behold, the lamb of God? who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, but that was a word that was used to describe a full-grown sacrificial lamb, the kind of lamb that would be used for, say, the Passover sacrifice and so on. This particular word for lamb, believe it or not, means a little lammy, if you want to use that expression. It's what we would call a diminutive. In other words, if you wanted a picture of the smallest most helpless, most cute little baby lamb you could possibly ever imagine. That's the picture of the lamb that we see in this particular passage. Why? Well, understand something. When we talk about the ministry of Jesus, one of the things that comes to mind is the humility of our Lord and how he manifested himself. You know, I, I, I love what uh, the book of Philippians chapter 2 says about this attitude that Jesus had and, and that he demonstrated uh, not only uh, for his glory, but for our example. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, we see a commandment I think that we could pay attention to. It says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction, affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being a one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, Jesus is unique in his humility. You know, there's an old saying, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. When Jesus manifests himself, even in heavenly glory, we see him as this tender, unthreatening, approachable, even cute 
lamb of God. Not necessarily, you know, the full-grown lamb or a ram we might expect with the, the horns and the power and so forth, but just this little lamb. Remember the old nursery rhyme? Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was white as snow. There we see in heavenly glory this picture of the utter humility of Jesus, and yet his glorious power coming together in perfect balance. Then he came and took the scroll, verse 7, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, notice the four living creatures, which were spoken of in Revelation chapter 4, these mighty angelic beings. And there's different ideas as to why each of them were manifested in the specific ways they were. You can get the uh, previous teaching if you want to explore that. But notice that 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each having a harp. Now, uh, the term harp will refer to uh, a ten-stringed instrument. Now, does this mean harp in the same way that we would understand it traditionally? Could it mean a ten-string guitar? I have no idea. But understand something, there is going to be music in heaven, and uh, contrary to what some denominations might teach, there's going to be musical instruments in heaven. Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, just a word about this. The golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In, in Psalm 141, King David said, May my prayers rise before you like incense. The prayers of my heart like the evening sacrifice. Understand something. What this tells us is not that these, you know, 24 elders are taking prayers and, and they're taking their prayers and, and they're ministering it to, to people. No, that's not what it's, what's being said here. What's being said here is that every prayer that has ever been prayed, not a single one has fallen through the cracks. Every prayer that has ever been prayed not only is contained before God in these beautiful bowls that we see here, these, these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. But understand a couple of things about that. First of all, God never loses a prayer. Second of all, every prayer before God is like sweet incense. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing in the presence of God. Now, what were these prayers all about? Might have been all the prayers prayed down through time that God's people have prayed, saying, Thy kingdom come. Lord, restore this earth. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, sometimes we think we're just saying these things, but heaven takes the words of our prayers very, very seriously. And notice they minister, they fall down before the Lamb, each having this harp and golden bowls full of incense. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation that made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Wow. Notice they sang a new song before the Lord. Now, is that new in the sense that uh, no one has ever sung a song like that before? Or could it be new in the sense that finally 
in its total fullness, no one has been able to say these words until this point of time in God's wonderful plan that he has yet to accomplish. You know, God loves it when we sing a new song. There's nothing wrong with the oldie moldies and the traditionals. But, you know, if the only songs we sing are songs that cause us to look back, we're missing out on something. I love what Psalm 40 says about this. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out out of the horrible pit and the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has given me a new song, praises to my God. Many shall see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. What's a new song all about? It's a new song because God's mercies are what? New every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Oh, you know, when you first fall in love with somebody, you know, even the, the most uh, stodgy and, and, and uncreative among us find ourselves uh, discovering the heart of a poet that's lurking somewhere in there. Why? Because you're so enamored of the newness of the relationship and the, the newness and excitement of, of getting to know this person that is starting to mean so much to you. Well, that's the idea of singing a new song to God. Constantly being looking for the new and wonderful works that the Lord is doing within our lives. Not being satisfied with just what he's done in the past, although it's wonderful to give thanks for the things he has done. But it's even more beautiful when we sing a new song regarding the things he's yet to do. Or even the unfolding blessings he gives us in the here and now. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, I, I call your attention to this because, A, one day when you're in heaven, you're going to say this. You ever wonder, you know, wow, wouldn't it be neat if you were in the, actually in the Bible? You are. You're part of this group. And notice it says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Notice, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Notice there is a sevenfold aspect of praise that is given to God in heaven. And the reason I call this to your attention is... Uh, sometimes I think we need praise lessons. Sometimes I think we need to become more skillful in the way that we praise God. We tend to praise God based upon, say, songs we've heard on K-Love or, or, or songs that we've heard in the past in church and things like this. But this sevenfold aspect of praise can be something that can really uh, revolutionize your time with God. I would encourage you to underline this particular passage. And the next time... You want to enter into God's presence, his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. How do you praise God? Some people seem to, to speak it like it's a second language. Others of us kind of, kind of struggle. Here's how you start. Go through this particular passage as you approach the throne of God. Think about God's power for a moment. There is nothing too great for him to do. Think of God's riches in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Think of God's wisdom 
that he always knows the right thing to do. Think of God's strength. There is no problem you, you have ever had, have now, or ever will have that is too great for him to handle. Think about God's honor. Jesus, the honorable one. Jesus, the one of perfect integrity, who always gets it right. Think of God's glory. God revealing himself to you personally. Think of God's blessing. The word there is the Greek word for ultimate happiness. In God's presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I guarantee you, if you start your prayer time entering into God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, you, you pray through these sevenfold attributes. You know a marvelous thing is going to happen? First of all, you're not going to be obsessing about yourself anymore. <laughs> and that's always a good thing. But secondly, it's going to lead you to be open to the ministry of God's Spirit as He reveals to you more and more the character of Jesus manifested in these beautiful words. How interesting. We are told in the book of Isaiah chapter 11 that when we talk about the Spirit of the Lord resting upon Jesus, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel, and, and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, seven characteristics of Messiah. That number seven, that number of completion, that number of wholeness, that can be a part of your praise experience. And every creature which is in, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all things which are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. A couple things here. First of all, we see a passage in Scripture, one that we started to read tonight, fulfilled. We see the fulfillment, if you will, of Philippians chapter 2. Remember how we left off in Philippians chapter 2 speaking about Jesus' humility? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here in Revelation chapter 5, we see that statement Paul made abundantly fulfilled. And that's a beautiful thing. But don't miss out on something else. Notice who is giving glory to God and when they're giving glory to God. It's not just the four living creatures. It's not just the 24 elders. It's not just, say, angels. We're talking about thousands upon thousands and thousands and thousands beyond them of God's people in His presence Worshiping him when? Immediately before the coming of what we would call the tribulation period. This is the aftermath of the rapture of the church. We will be there with this crowd to worship the Lord safely home before the storm breaks in Revelation chapter 6. And verse 1. Wow. What a beautiful picture of heaven. And so, 
I know some of you out there are saying, well, you know, Scott, yeah, but I've read some of these books and I've heard some of these guys talk about all the things they've seen in heaven. And it certainly seems a lot more lurid and a lot more vivid than, than, than what you've talked about here in this passage. Well, maybe, but stop and think for just a second. The more we begin to understand something about heaven and what makes heaven heaven, maybe it puts these books and stuff in their, their proper perspective. You know what makes heaven heaven? It's not just that there's going to be streets of translucent gold and, and a city that is going to be 1,400 miles high by 1,400 miles wide. Was, gates are going to be made up of an individual pearl. Boy, I'd love to see the oyster that cranked that one out. The thing that's going to make heaven heaven, guess what? Is the lambs there. Not distant and aloof and inaccessible, but manifesting himself in such a humble way that although he has all power and all knowledge, he also has all love and all accessibility for people like you and me. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. If you love Jesus, trust me, you're going to love heaven. <laughs> Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful picture tonight of our destiny, uh, of our place, even in your word. And boy, the, the day where all this is manifest is nearer now than we first believed. So we thank you, Lord, that even in this world that seems to be falling apart, your plans are not going to fail. And even though, Lord, sometimes we get discouraged, we look at the horizontal, I pray that you would make us the best kind of heavenly-minded, realizing that eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor entered into the mind of man those things you prepared for those who love you. Prepare us for that glorious moment and help us to even have perspective about our lives and what's going on in our lives that is tempered with this beautiful hope that we know how the story turns out. And we know what our destiny is going to be. And we will one day bask in the light of your love like a warm, rising sun, chasing away the frost and cold of this world and bringing about a brand new existence where we know you and worship you and join with the angels in appreciating and adoring you. We thank you for this picture tonight, everything we need to know about where we're going until we get there. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.